I'm Carrie Budoff Brown, editor of Politico. Welcome back to Women Rule, the podcast. I have a special treat today, um, a special edition of Women Rule. We have two Politico magazine editors with us today, senior editor Margie Slattery and deputy editor Elizabeth Ralph. Um, I decided to do this because Politico has this Politico magazine, which is this awesome publication that we put out as part of the Politico brand. Um, And we actually print magazines. I'm not sure everyone quite realizes that, but six times a year, we print a magazine and our next issue, which just came out, is focused on women. And uh, the reason for this is this is the one year anniversary of, of the 2016 election. A lot of people, I think, thought that we would have uh, the first female president at this point. So we wanted to use this magazine to take stock of where we are. And we have this uh, a number of great profiles on very powerful fascinating women. And to walk us through that edition, I thought, you know what, I'm going to bring two of the coolest women I have here in the newsroom who both work on the magazine. So please stick around for that conversation. On the Women Rule podcast, we'll be bringing you backstage with women leaders, the big bosses in politics and policy. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter at Brown. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. And now a word from our presenting sponsor, Chevron. When more girls go into science, technology, engineering, and math, the whole world benefits. With support from families, schools, policymakers, and businesses, girls can do remarkable things with STEM. Chevron is proud to join Women Rule in empowering the next generation of female leaders. And now, our talk with Politico Magazine editors Margie Slattery and Elizabeth Ralph. These are two uh, kick-ass women who basically edit a ton of the copy you see coming through our magazine, and I'm just thrilled to have you here. Hello. Hi, Carrie. Um, Elizabeth, how did you end up at Politico, and, and how did you uh, get into magazine writing? Tell me, give me just the, the quick one-minute take on Elizabeth Ralph. Well, I started as an intern at Foreign Policy Magazine. I was a, a 25-year-old intern. I hadn't been in journalism before. I didn't do it in college. And on a whim, I applied. Um, I moved to D.C. I got the job. I was there for about five months. And at the end of my internship, I had a couple things lined up, nothing serious. I was going to do book research for a new book that was coming out on Lady Bird Johnson. I had a couple potential gigs. Susan Glasser, who was my boss at the time, at she was the editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine, said, I, I have an idea for you. Why don't you send me an email? And um, I did. And before I know it, she's sending me an email saying, let's go get coffee. I want to start a new magazine at Politico. And will you come? And I said, absolutely. Uh, I couldn't pass up the chance to start something new, do something from scratch. I thought it was really exciting. So I've been here since day one. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. was what, 2013? 2013, July 1st. So the magazine is now four years old. I think yep. we're almost like the four four year anniversary yep. exactly, right? Mm-hmm. It was like fall yeah. of 2013. Yeah. I think it was November. Yep. So, yep. Yeah. So that's when I was a reporter and Elizabeth sat close to me yeah. and I got to know her quite well. So I have a great fondness for Elizabeth. Um, Margie, you were a senior magazine editor. Um, tell me tell me about uh, just the quick take on, on Margie Slattery. How did you end up here? Uh, I also 
worked at foreign policy yeah. before coming to Politico. It's a I pattern. Was, yeah. I, well, I started, um, I did my high school and college newspaper, so loved journalism uh, from a somewhat young age, and um, got my first job at foreign policy, uh, sort of a low-level editor, and um, came with Susan when she moved to Politico to start the magazine here, and have really just tried to expand my portfolio and become a better editor and journalist. So, Margie, you you help basically design the print magazine every other month. Um, as we said, this one, we decided to focus on women. Mm-hmm. So when you and Blake Hounschel, who's uh, – editor of the magazine and Steve Heuser, editor of the print magazine, were sitting down and Janet Mashad, who's a creative director, I often see you guys like huddling mm-hmm. in offices, yeah. like thinking smart things. Uh, what was your vision for this, for this magazine? And, and just run us quickly through the top features that we have. Yeah. So we had sort of a framing question, which was, it's November 2017. About a year ago, we were all kind of expecting that we would be electing the first woman president. And today it feels like that prospect is sort of far away, Um, both in the sense that, you know, uh, Donald Trump stands a pretty good chance in 2020. As far as we know, there is a Democratic field that includes potential women candidates, um, but no one with quite the shot that Hillary Clinton had, that kind of a clear shot. Um, And Donald Trump, I think it's fair to say, has sort of – asserted the masculine nature of the office in a lot of ways as a candidate and now as president. So uh, I think there are a lot of women out there thinking, is this actually going to happen at some point that we're going to have a a woman president and when and how? So that was our framing question. And we did um, a collection of responses in in answer to that question. So you you threw out that question to what? Yeah. uh, You know, a dozen or so women. And give us the diversity of the folks you surveyed and what was the takeaway from this, you know, attempt to sort of get some form around that question? We talked to both or we uh, solicited responses from both um, people in politics, so pollsters or strategists who had worked on 2016 campaigns or previous campaigns, Um, also some academic experts who studied things like the psychology of gender stereotypes or the different systems internationally in which women have tended to uh, rise to power more frequently than other systems. Um, And the idea was to just get a broad range of responses and um, a broad range of thinking about, like, what's happening in America and will this happen in America. Of that group, were there – did you have a favorite response or one that resonated with you? I was really interested in the woman who – her name is Susan Fisk. She's a um, professor of psychology at Princeton – Um, And she has studied gender stereotypes, and she has found – she's looked at uh, stereotypes across cultures, and she's found that gender stereotypes are associated with our family structures. So we usually have a woman and a man um, in a family, typically, uh, and across cultures, the man tends to be the dominant figure. And that embeds us with a sense of, you know, where genders fall uh, status-wise in society, and so – her point was that that will make it hard to dislodge the stereotypes that we grow up with um, in terms of men versus women uh, as leaders. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. One response that I found particularly interesting was by a political scientist at the University of Oklahoma who found that our system of govern- government actually isn't that conducive to women rulers. 
you often find women disproportionately represented in parliamentary systems where it's easy easier for them to get cycled out and cycled in. It's a harder job to keep a hold of. But you rarely see women in high power, you know, centralized power positions like high power presidencies. Those tend to be seen as masculine. When you do see women in those positions, they tend to share power with ministers. Mm -hmm. Um, You see a prime minister, president power sharing arrangement. And then when you see women in the real powerful positions like president of a country, they don't share power. They tend to be related to male presidents in the past. You look at Argentina, for example. This political scientist was not optimistic about the opportunities for women. And I found that across the board, a lot of the minimal lo- op- yeah, optimism about yeah. it. Yeah. A lot of the, you know, the Republican and Democratic strategists were all very optimistic. They said, oh, of course, you know, next time, yes, we have a great bench. You know, of course, Hillary was just the wrong woman at the wrong time. But the researchers, the people who study these numbers, say there are huge barriers, not just. I mean, some say that the way that women are perceived in society has to do with family, as Margie pointed out. Some say that it's our system of governance. There is the fact that the presidency is still seen as a male office. Everyone who has had the office is a man. We think of a suit behind a podium. You know, this is just kind of the way that we think about the office. I have a pretty pessimistic view about, about mm-hmm. the parties nominating women anytime soon. I'm, I'd be pleased to be, to be wrong. Um, but I thought – a lot of what I've been thinking was reflected in across the board on on these capsules that we collected, and I would highly recommend reading it. Um, another, Margie, another great piece we have is a, a colleague or a reporter we have in the newsroom, Edward, Edward Isaac Dovier, our chief Washington correspondent, uh, got extensive access to Nancy Pelosi. And I love the beginning of the story because it just proves why Nancy Pelosi is such a force that Donald Trump was calling her, I think, the day after mm-hmm. the election. Um, give us a and, – and sort of that scene. Set that scene for us. Yeah. And what do we learn about Nancy Pelosi in this profile? Like why should anybody read another profile on Nancy Pelosi? Like how did, yeah. we, how did we do that here? So in that scene, it's the day after the election, I believe. And Trump is basically calling Nancy Pelosi to sort of – or I forget who called who, but she was congratulating him uh, and – he was saying to her, you know, you're known for getting things done, and I recognize that. And it's funny because months later, this was September, was when she, along with Chuck Schumer, the minority leader, um, made a deal with Trump to uh, extend the budget for three months. It's pretty well-timed. I mean, like, yeah, in some ways. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is a force to be reckoned with in this town. Yeah. Right? Um, it's hard. It's, it's easy to forget that one of the most powerful people in Washington is a woman. Yes. And she's at a moment uh, personally where she's actually being undercut by some members of her own party who, after the election, were calling for her to step down as leader because she sort of represents this. They say she represents this sort of moneyed um, Democratic establishment, which was exactly what the election was sort of a referendum on. Mm-hmm. And she's also somewhat older than other members. They feel like it's time for a new, fresher face to lead the party. So she was under under facing heat from her own members. She sort of came through with this deal and feels like she is proving herself and her value. She's someone who... <laughs> Which is pretty remarkable, her feeling like she has to prove her value yeah, and her worth. A, she's a great the speaker with who got health care... Yes. You know, overhaul yeah. past decades that the party had tried to do that didn't succeed. 
And I, I covered that fight. Like, <laughs> the, literally the reason it passes because of Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Yeah. And she still feels like she has to prove her worth, right? She has a really good quote in the story that's something like, um, oh, she says, self-promotion is a terrible thing, but somebody has to do it. And I guess I have to do it more. Mm-hmm. And um, she feels like she and mem- members of her own party say this. She knows her members very well. Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. always keeping good track of where her votes are and where they aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, the people in the Obama White House who she worked with said the same thing, that they could always rely on her to deliver when she promised she would. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would trust her if she said she couldn't deliver. Mm-hmm. So she owns this caucus and understands Congress in a way that very few people do. Um, and in an, in an odd way, she's having a chance to sort of reassert that authority mm-hmm. under Trump. Um, because Republicans have really struggled to control their votes in the way that she has been able to. The other thing that struck me is her leadership style. She seems to have a very multidimensional style. A, a lot of the uh, what Isaac talks about in the profile is how she works a room. Yeah. And she goes in and he uses this – he sort of basically says she's like pinballing through the room, you know, to one side, talking to someone else. And she knows exactly she a, what – I think she has like a high emotional IQ, I think. Yeah, exactly. Right? She, she can like look at yeah. a room and judge, oh, this person looks like this, so I need to go talk with him about this. I know what's going on in his or mm-hmm. her life. She's very good. She's a, it's, a, it's like a nurturing style, but she's pretty freaking tough. We'll be right back with more Women Rule, but first a word from our presenting sponsor, Chevron. When more girls go into science, technology, engineering, and math, the whole world benefits. With support from families, schools, policymakers, and businesses, girls can do remarkable things with STEM. Chevron is proud to join Women Rule in empowering the next generation of female leaders. Elizabeth, why, why would we do a story on Trump's mother? Well, Trump talks a lot about his father. Fred Trump, he was a successful real estate businessman in New York City. He taught Trump a lot of what he knows. Trump says that he kind of instilled in me the killer instinct. Trump really rarely talks about his mother. I think there's a few examples where he writes about her in some of his books. Um, sort of generic cookie-cutter ways where he's repeating phrases Mm -hmm. like, she was a great homeowner. Yeah, exactly. She was a homemaker. homemaker, Yeah, a great homemaker. And and but my dad was really the one that kind of formed me into the businessman that I am. And so, what influence did what influence did his mother have on him? What's the takeaway? I guess the takeaway, Margie, you can correct me if this is wrong, but um, is that perhaps her absence, the lack of the, the the lack of a motherly influence in her life. What we sort of know about her is that she was a fairly reserved, not very present, not very active mother. Um, what what influence could that have on the president of the United States? Obviously, we can't diagnose anybody. <laughs> uh, but but Michael Cruz, the writer of the story, did talk to a lot of psychologists and sort of figuring out could this have affected Trump's personality? Could could the traits that we're seeing from Donald Trump, the kind of bombast, um, the the thin skin, uh, the hyper reactivity? be some sort of result from his relationship with his mother. Uh, Betsy DeVos, another uh, focus of one of our pieces. This is Tim Alberta, uh, our national political writer housed in the magazine, got, again, uh, some pretty unique access Mm -hmm. to Betsy DeVos, who is the education secretary and uh, sort of a figure of fascination, right? Uh, What did we learn about Betsy in this piece? 
So the piece is called The Education of Betsy DeVos, Mm -hmm. and we all know that Betsy DeVos was perhaps the most controversial of Trump's cabinet picks. Um, She was uh, confirmed by a single tie-breaking vote. She was vilified as anti-public school because she had a long record as an advocate for school choice and vouchers. And I think a lot of people, especially on the left, were concerned about her stewardship of this department and what she would do uh, as education secretary. Tim went to find out what was she actually doing and what, what was she learning on the job. And he sort of found that she was discovering the limits of her, of her role as a, as a secretary. The education department is relatively small compared with other departments. Education is um, fairly localized. It's something that, you know, communities at a, at a local level control. And uh, what she has done so far is not quite so grand and sweeping and potentially scary as others have cast it as uh, being. So she's focused mostly on visiting schools where she highlights schools that are doing innovative things. And she's also um, focused on rolling back some of the regulations put in place by the Obama administration. Um, So his sort of uh, thesis is that she's in a smaller role than people thought she might occupy. Margie, did you did you see something that, you know, what was what what stuck out to you the most in terms of understanding women in power in Washington at this moment in time? I think I'm struck by the women who do – the Nancy Pelosi profile, for instance, is a woman who does occupy a very high office. And she says at the end of the piece that one reason she cites for staying in her position is that she feels like it's important to have a woman at the table, um, which is often not the case. And Mm -hmm. um, it's just that Hearing her say that kind of makes me think the numbers are really so low. Mm -hmm. Um, Isaac in the story says that it doesn't look like there will be a House minority or majority leader very soon who's a woman Mm -hmm. just based on the the options out there. Um, And so that this one woman who occupies this very high office feels like she has to stay there in part to be the woman at the table Mm -hmm. was a little bit – I mean, it's it's true. I totally – you know. Yeah. It strikes a chord, but it's no, it somewhat depressing. Yeah. <laughs> it is remarkable. I think there was a you know, great anecdote that the post, the Washington Post got of a of a meeting around the time where she was striking this these deals with Trump where all the men were talking, all the men were talking at a meeting at the White House and she had to say something on the lines of, Can you guys stop talking long enough so or does can a woman sort of speak yeah. in this huh. environment? Mm-hmm. Um and that's just a remarkable thing. Yeah. It's twenty freaking seventeen. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, it, to, to that point, though, of, of being having a, a, you know, women in the process, it's a really important thing also in newsrooms. Yeah. Um, when, Margie, is there some perspective that you think you bring as like a a younger female editor? Yeah. At a publication um, where you're, you know, you're making decisions all the time about what to cover. Like, I'm going to pose the question to both of you. So, Elizabeth, get ready. But, like, <laughs> w- w- give me an example of when – being a woman has, you know, changed maybe what you did or what the group did that you're yeah. working with. So I think we all know that politics is a male and white male dominated arena. Um, and when we think about what we put in each issue, I'm always thinking in the back of the mind of my mind, do we have enough women writers? Um, it's a challenge because I think that in politics, men – 
tend to be more comfortable as commentators or be more abundant as commentators. Um, so when we receive pitches from writers, they are overwhelmingly male. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when we solicit, um, like to a group of people, we'll ask a question, help us analyze this news event, we'll solicit responses. Even if it's a 50-50 split between who we're asking, uh, we get more male responses. So how do you account for that? Then what do you do? We just sure we have to be proactive. We have yeah. to look at you know look at our coverage every day. Look at the selection of writers in each issue and say where's where's the woman writer? Where are the women writers? So do you have any tips for women, Elizabeth? As you, Elizabeth, you do a lot of the editing and story cultivation for like the day to day and the digital operations. So yeah. yours is a much quicker. Like mm-hmm. you're putting out requests and and. Uh, you got to jump on like who responds, yeah. right? And and yeah, how do you find harder. women compared yeah. to men in that environment where it's like I need something by five p.m. Yeah, um, you don't you bit you don't have time to you don't have two weeks to curate you know yeah. the perfect mix. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard. We're always looking for more women. I would say to echo what Margie said. I, I heard the statistic once that when women are women wait till they are 90% qualified for a job to apply for it and men wait till they're 60% qualified for a job <laughs> and i feel like it's like that with pitches and and i have men just you know sending and it's not that they're bad it's just that it's a numbers game you know they're going to send me 20 sort of half thought out pitches and the the pitches i get from females not to generalize tend to be a lot more well researched already fully formed already um and i think i I'm much more proactive about staying in touch with the female writers I work with, you know, always coming back to them with ideas. Hey, just checking in. Do you have any pitches? What are you working on right now? Men will more often come to me with like the latest thought in their head. And <laughs> women, it takes a lot. It takes more effort on mm-hmm. my part. I think I to sort of cultivate. It's something that I, I think I need to work on, but it's something I always am working on is cultivating these personal editor-writer relationships with these women um, so that I'm the first person they pitch and also they can feel more comfortable just passing ideas to me, you know, and we can always be having a story in the works. I think um, – So it takes more effort. Like it takes more effort to have it like does, diversity yeah. with so. gender. Yeah. Um, and it's a very conscious thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I also find some of my regular writers, I can be pretty honest with them and say, hey, who do you have that's great on the topic, you know? And and they will they will often send me the you know great people women to to work with the commonalities are pretty striking between politics where you have to do the personal touch and you have to reach out and you have to go back five times before you get a woman to run for office or even consider running yeah. for office isn't yeah. the same thing it seems like in the magazine <laughs> it is, world it is, yeah so there you go um, and just the, the last question like what what does why is it why is it important to have to have that mix what you know why 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 do we even need yeah. it. Part of what a magazine does, as opposed to uh, an, a hard news outlet, which Politico does much of, is bring in a variety of voices to help make sense of the news in surprising ways. And if those voices that we're relying on are guys who have spent their lives talking on TV about politics, there's going to be a lot of repetition, not no new insights. Um And I think women, along with many other demographics, um, people outside of Washington, people in other parts of the world, um, people just from different backgrounds can add to our understanding of what's happening in this country. Um, 
Just the experiences they bring. Yeah. Diverse experiences. Exactly. Make for more interesting stories. Right, Elizabeth? Yeah. I mean, women women are half the population. They're more (laughs) than half the voting population. And we, our job is to convey information. You know, we are, we're a magazine that's trying to, like Margie said, we're trying to shake up the conventional wisdom. We're trying to bring new perspectives. We're trying to provide as well-rounded a portrait of the world as we possibly can. Um, and we do that in the service of readers who are half women. I, women make up a huge part of the world. And I think that we see this problem in, in politics, which is such a male-dominated arena, how do we know that the policies that we're instilling are actually speak to, you know, half of the population? And what can we do to make sure that they do actually speak to half the population? And um, there are certain things for which you absolutely need women at the table, and there are certain topics for which you actually definitely need women writing them down at the table with a pen, you exactly. know, to publish on Politico <laughs> magazine. Do you, do, uh, do you have a favorite women writer? Sure. I think um, Emily Bazelon is doing really interesting work on criminal justice. I think she, when she writes about especially sexual assault, she can really paint the full portrait in a great way. I like reading her articles. I think that they are fascinating. I actually work with her sister, Laura, who's also a great legal commentator. She has fascinating takes on subjects. So I think that um, the Bazelon sisters themselves are great. I'm a fan as well. Yeah. And Margie? I was going to say another Emily who has a similar interest, Emily Yaffe. She's been writing about college sexual assault in, I think, a very oh. nuanced way. And yeah. I'm working on her a story with her, hopefully, um, to come out soon on the same topic. Interesting. All right. Elizabeth Ralph and Margie Slattery, the audience should keep an eye on these two. They're going to be running shit someday. <laughs> <laughs> Try. <laughs> 